Jeff, uh, I really appreciate your time uh, coming on the podcast. Uh, I know you've been on some really great podcasts in the past, so I really appreciate your time and welcome to the cage. No, awesome to be here, man. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, yeah, anytime to get out, and, you know, share the story of the men and kind of what we're all about. Uh, look for any and every opportunity. So thank you. It's my pleasure. Um, obviously, um, I've, I've read your book, uh, Legion Rising. I mean, it, it doesn't hold on any of the punches. It's really a first-hand account. I don't think you hide really anything from the reader. Um, so I'd really like to obviously start at the beginning of your story with your childhood. Um, in some respects, a difficult childhood, single mother, um, an older brother by about two years. So if you could Talk us through your, your earliest memories and the probably lessons learned from that time period that shaped you into the person you were becoming. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, we all kind of view things in hindsight. You know, when you're, you're a kid growing up in a small town, you know, Destin, yeah, it's a real popular beach resort town now. But when I was a kid, there's a couple thousand people living there. And, you know, I knew we didn't have, I didn't have the, the newest shoes every year that my buddies had or, you know, the nicest clothes. But, uh, you know, it, it was as I got older that I think I had the perspective of, you know, man, how hard that was, you know, that it, it wasn't normal for, you know, your mom to be gone and you're, you're six and your brother's eight, you know, you're making dinner for yourself and the neighborhood security guard is coming to check in on you. And then you go to sleep and your mom come and wake you up after her, you know, her, her late shift as a bartender and wake you up and then go deliver newspapers in the middle of the night just to kind of make ends meet. So, you know, yeah, I guess on paper, I look back and say, yeah, it was a difficult childhood. I mean, there were some other things. Obviously, you can kind of read between the lines and stuff with my dad not being around and kind of why. Uh, you know, yeah, it, it was tough. But I think what what I took away from that was, uh, and, you know, and again, I didn't realize it at the time, was just watching how hard my mom worked. And, you know, just she had every reason in the world to, to give up. We didn't have any family close by. The closest family was four or five hours away. And, you know, she could have moved back home, but she was she was going to find a way. And I think that that early example, just of perseverance and, and will, I think just instilled something in me that uh, while life wasn't easy, my mom had enough on her plate. Uh, things with a divorce with my dad took a, a harder toll on my older brother. and. I just kind of adopted this mindset early on in life of, you know, she's, she can worry about a lot of things, but she's not going to have to worry about me. And uh, yeah, I think it kind of set me on the right path and set the kind of the you know, intestinal fortitude, you want to call it that for some of the things that would, you know, come, come my way later in life. Absolutely. Um, one of the, the turning points in your life, uh, 1991 silence of the lambs. Uh, yeah. I read it, it gave you an interest in the FBI and sort of law enforcement and, and put you on a little bit of a path there. Yeah, it did. You know, and again, sometimes you got to go back and it's hard to imagine the days of, you know, pre-internet when you could just Google something and figure out, you know, learn more about it. But yeah, that was the first time I'd been exposed to, you know, like a profiler, 
And I just thought that was, was so cool. And so I asked around growing up in a military town, you knew people who, who knew people and it's like, you know, what's the best way to get in the FBI or any kind of federal law enforcement. And, and they all said, well, the military is a great way, uh, you know, get your law degree or be an accountant and numbers, God bless every accountant out there. That's just not my thing. So uh, that's kind of what, why I'd always had an interest in the military. That's really, I think what kind of call it with, with the match, I guess you could say, uh, it really got me seriously considered as an option. Yeah. Um, so obviously you, obviously, you had law on your mind and you, uh, you went to Samford, obviously uh, looking at some sort of law degree. Uh, and that's where I believe you, you met probably one of your first sort of male role models, Coach Williams. Um, can you give us uh, a bit of a story behind Coach Williams and how he became a sort of role model male yeah. figure in your life? Yeah, so he was actually in high school uh, before I went to Sanford. Uh, I went out for the football team. I played baseball my whole life. And before my senior year of high school, I had some buddies that were like, man, the team's going to be good next year. We need a couple more guys. Why don't you come out and play? So I went out spring of my junior year, the way it works over here in the States. You know, you have spring football. And so that was when I went out the first time. And Coach Williams was my defensive back coach. And yeah, my, my first memory of him is me showing up at practice and, you know, immediately like made fun. I was, I was little, man. I was 150 pounds at the time. Not that I'm a big guy now, but I uh, was real tiny. And, you know, he made fun of how big the shoulder pads were on me and uh, asked me if I needed any help putting the helmet on. Cause I didn't know the difference between, uh, you know, my ass, a helmet or a hole in the ground, just his, his idea. And again, you know, you, you figure this out over time is, uh, he had been told by the head coach and the guys that were kind of recruiting me to come out and play of, you know, Hey, there, here's this baseball player and he's going to come out and try out for football. And he, uh, he just wanted to test me from the get go and see if I, I would stand up to it and kind of, you know, he was the old school, uh, old school coach that we all know about. Uh, so yeah, he was tough on me, man, through that spring, just rode me to the ground, never said a nice thing to me. Uh, the spring game, everybody that was going to be a senior the next year, they didn't have to play it. It was for the junior guys. He made me play. And Summer just rode me like a dog, man. I mean, just uh, so bad. I, I I wanted to quit. Just, I mean, it's style. I was giving him a hard time. He's a good friend of mine now. So I got the damn fly in the house. Uh, yeah, I'm like, man, some of the stuff he did now would probably get him, you know, arrested in today's, in today's society. How, you know, people are so just, uh, you know, weird about things. And, and damn it. Uh, sorry. But yeah, you know, at the end of that summer, man, we went through our little camp at the end and he pulled me aside and just said, hey, look, man, you've you've proven to me what I wanted to see. You know, you didn't give up everything I gave you. You took it. You came back harder. Uh, things are going to be different now. And, uh, you know, let's go out. And let's win some games. Uh, so, yeah, it was kind of that uh, I wanted to quit. But my mom had always had this thing, you know, back to her of like, you know, you don't have to you don't have to like something, but if you start something, you finish it. doesn't mean you got to go back and do it again, but you'll never quit on anything. And yeah. so I wrote it out. Is that one of the lessons that um, you took with you for the rest of your life? What he sort of instilled in you with that never quit attitude? Yeah, no doubt. You know, it was just, I think once you go through something that makes you want to quit uh, and you don't do it, then the next time something comes up, whether it's harder easier, whatever it may be, you know, you just had that perspective of, I can get through this. And I mean, again, this guy was, I mean, just 
just an asshole to me. I mean, it's the best way I can put it. Uh, but yeah, it just, you know, it took this kid who had kind of grew up, you know, you know, call it maybe a little, probably not a little, probably a lot soft. And for the first time had been pushed not only physically, but also mentally kind of to the, the most extremes at that point in my life, you know, and then I got through it. So I knew the next time something came my way, I could get through that. And the next time I could get through that. So yeah, no doubt. It was always say like, you know, he was the guy that, you know, he, he took that boy and turned him into a man. Um, so as you said, you, you went to Samford afterwards and you were obviously looking at studying law. Um, obviously, you, you probably found the, the paperwork side of that probably a little bit too much when you were sitting your exams. Yeah, you know, there's that, that fine thing, you know, you're, you know, 18, 19, 20 year old kid, early 20s and you got this macho side of you that wants to go out and you know, I was playing football all the time and then go join the military and do all these crazy things. And at the other time, I kind of had this long-term vision of, you know, well, what if the military doesn't work out? What if I don't get to do some of these things, uh, you know, in federal law enforcement, you know, at some point I want to have a family one day and that life maybe not be the most conducive to it. And, you know, a law degree is not a bad thing to fall back on. So that's, you know, one of the primary reasons that I, that I chose Samford and yeah, it was, probably about halfway, a little more than halfway through it when I went and took the LSAT, kind of the, you know, the kind of like the GMAT for grad school. I'm not sure how it is over in England, but, you know, the LSAT is a test you got to take to get your score to go into law school. And it was literally, and I know it sounds kind of, you know, dramatic, and I don't mean for it to be that way, but it was literally like I sat down to take the test and just sort of had this, what the hell am I doing, man? If I don't go all in on this other dream, I'm going to wonder the rest of my life, you know, what if? And so, yeah, that's when I that's when I pivot and put all my focus on the military. And that pivot pointed you towards the Navy SEALs. Yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, from, you know, spoiler alert, reading the book, we know you don't make it into the Navy SEALs. <laughs> However, yeah. what an interesting journey it was um, with your epiphany of putting sand down your pants. <laughs> <laughs> if you could put that story into, into context, yeah. that would be fantastic. So, and it's funny, you know, I, I put that in the book. Uh, and again, there was, we'll get to it. There was a very important life lesson learned through that uh, experience. Uh, but again, back to, you just don't know what you don't know. And growing up in the environment that I did, uh, it was always kind of like the hard way always seemed to be the way that got me through things and and a lot of it and again it's again people laugh at me all the time I laugh at myself so joke away but you know in baseball you know you slide you do whatever and they always talk about you get calluses like on the inside of your forearm you do a head first slide and again this is old school dumb late 80s early 90s mentality of you know well the more you do it the more it scabs up you'll eventually get a callus and then it won't stand up anymore and it won't hurt so uh Back to pre-internet, you can't get a whole lot of information on buds, what goes on at SEAL training. But the one thing you do hear is like, the guys are wet, they're cold, they're in the sand, they're in the water, they're in the sand, then they go run. And I'd heard from numerous people that they just got chafed all the time from running in pants, you know, being wet in the sand. So again, Jeff's light bulbs go off, you know, of, well, hey, the hard way to do it is like, let's let's build up a callus. So I would go swim and uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, I would get out and I just meant there's somebody out there now still telling stories about the dumb kid they would see on the beach every day throwing sand down his pants and we'd go running and man, it would just, 
it would just rub me raw, man. And I would come in and neosporin it up and let it scab up a little bit, then go out and do it again. And uh, yeah, so two things. One, it, it never got a callus. Uh, everybody always asked that. The answer is no. And then two, when I took the little seal fitness test, I think is what you're getting to, yeah. is uh, the, the seal that I took it in front of. You know, he did say, this guy was straight out of a movie, man. I mean, just looked apart. Didn't say barely anything to me. It's, you know, all right, here's the standards. Go do the test. And uh, and I was in really good shape, man. I was, I've been practicing for this thing. So I just, I nailed the test and we get done. And it's like, you know, all right. So obviously you're in good shape, but, you know, buds is as much a mental thing as it is a physical thing. So what are you doing mentally to prepare yourself as, you know, as, as well as physically? And again, so my mind, like, all right, dude, finally someone who's going to get it, someone who will appreciate all the pain and misery that I put myself through. So you can understand, you know, this dude, I'm 5'10", this dude's 6'3", 6'4", you know, so he's just looking down at me and he's got his arms crossed like this. And I was like, well, chief, you know, I go for a long swim and, you know, I hear the chafing's a big problem. So I'll throw a bunch of sand down my pants and then I'll go for a run. And I get about that far and he's just like, stop, just puts his <laughs> hand up right here in my face. And uh, <laughs> he's like, what did you say? And I was like, well, I heard that chafing's a problem. So I, you know, throw sand down my pants to build up a callus. And he just cut me off and he's just like, son, just stop. And uh, can you drop F-bombs on your show? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, all right. <laughs> so he was just like, he just looks at me and just shakes his head and says, son, that is the dumbest fucking thing I have ever heard of in my life. Uh, that is like practicing getting kicked in the nuts. It is going to suck every damn time. So let me give you a little bit of advice, son. Uh, if it doesn't make sense, don't do it. And so, you know, it's a funny story. And I mean, as the book came out, I, I, I get asked to tell it all the time and everyone laughs at me and everyone says that's their favorite part. And it is. I deserve every bit of humiliation that comes with that. But I'll tell you, it was a life lesson. In fact, you know, how dejected and, and embarrassed I was at the time. I can't tell you how many times, you know, fast forward a few years, you know, Baghdad, uh, hell, even now in the business world, even now as a parent, whatever it may be, you know, we always have that shit starts going on and something happens, you know, you feel like you have to react right away. And just that lesson of, you know, take a tactical pause and stop. And the first question I always ask myself is, does this make sense what I'm doing or what we're about to do? And then uh, make the decision to go from there. Still, that's probably something learned very early on that can be applied throughout your coming career i mean to learn that lesson such early on has got to be you know a positive in itself oh no doubt 100 percent um so obviously um there were some issues with you joining the seals um and you didn't quite make it in yeah so i went for it the first year and again this was pre-9-11 and the recruiter yeah. was honest. He's like, dude, they don't take guys like you off the street. I don't care what kind of grades, what kind of recommendation letters. They'll take a handful of SEAL officers. And again, I was very naive to how the military worked. I mean, this sounds dumb, but I didn't have anybody in my family that was in the military. Uh, you know, I had some friends whose parents were, but it's just a different world then. And so I thought that since I had a degree that I had to be an officer, like that was the only option. And so that was what I went for. And they were like, well, why don't you enlist? And I'm like, well, I have a degree. I have to go the officer route. I just didn't quite get it. So they told me I wouldn't get it. So sure enough, the first year I applied, uh, you know, wasn't selected. Uh, the next year he said, hey, we think they'll take more slots next year. 
you know, trying two years in a row may help your cause. Yeah. And that was when I started having the, the shoulder problems. I mean, it'd been there since, you know, the football days, uh, but just got to a point where I had to get something done and, you know, minor surgery and they got in there and saw it was worse than they expected it to be and told me I needed major reconstructive surgery. And uh, the Navy told me they would never take me with a injury like that on my record. I went to the Marines. They told me the same thing, went to the army. They told me the same thing. So with that in a uh, summer of 2000, uh, I thought that uh, the military dream was done. Um, now, reading in the book, it was um, another book that inspired you to have another go at the military. Uh, and that yeah. book was Black Hawk Down. How inspirational to you was that book? I think it was, I mean, A, just the story. I mean, the story speaks for itself. You know, just the 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 rush, the adrenaline, the camaraderie, the loss, uh, you know, it's just the emotion behind it. Uh, but I think for me, and I think, for, you know, one thing that drives a lot of young men in particular to join the military, especially if you want to go the infantry or special operations routes, you know, is just that, that internal, am I good enough? Do I, do I have what it takes? And, you know, I know for me, that was definitely a part of, I mean, there was a sense of, you know, pride in country, of course, and, stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves, but I'm, I'm always very honest. I mean, one of the driving factors, like I wanted to prove to myself, I could do these things. And, you know, when the shoulder stuff happened, it was like, all right, at least kind of now I got a reason, you know, like, yeah, I'll, I'll always wonder, but I got a legitimate excuse as to why I wasn't able to pursue that. But, you know, fast forward a year and read the book and man, it just came, came burning back. Like I still, I didn't want to have that regret of, you know, could I have done it? Would I have been good enough? And uh, so, yeah, so the book, and then I know you're probably leading to that, you know, about a month after I, I read the book was when uh, 9-11 happened. Yeah. Um, what was your thoughts uh, as you had that news coming in? Were you instantly thinking, right, I'm going to the recruiting station and I'm signing a contract and I'm, I want to be out there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was uh I mean, it, it was instant. I mean, and again, not to over-dramatize things, but I, I was driving into work uh, when it came over the radio that a tower had hit the first building. And I was opening up the store that day and I walked in and then me and some guys walked over the TV in the lounge area. Uh, and that's when we saw the second one hit soon after that. And I mean, it was right away, you know, at, at that point you knew what was going on. And at that point right there is when my decision was made. You uh, decided to go infantry uh, officer. Um, when you were going through through training, obviously uh, you'd had some people that were already previously served um, military career going in for this training. Uh, do you want to just talk a, a couple of minutes about the guys that took you under their wing, uh, gave you some advice and perhaps inspired you while you were going through that training? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sorry, this damn fly. <laughs> You'll always remember this podcast with a fly that wouldn't leave your guest alone. But uh, yeah, you know, so basic training was kind of kind of a joke. You know, I'm 28 years old going through basic training. Uh, then, but yeah, it was officer candidate school was where just by luck of the draw, man, my roommate was a, was a prior Ranger Battalion. Uh, he had been at E6. You know, he was doing the, the green to gold, going the enlisted route to the officer route. Uh, we shared uh, a bathroom with another room and that room had a prior service E8 who was going uh, the officer route. 
and then another prior service E7 who had been in special forces. And not only were they just good dudes, uh, just great to hang out with. I mean, it's, uh, and again, I think, you know, being older helped, like I quickly realized like, all right, this is a school. There's certain things they have to teach you here. It's officer candidate school is the dumbest 14 weeks of my life, man. I mean, how do you, how do you take a school and like train someone to be a leader of men and women? You just, you know, you can't do it. Uh, I mean, you can teach in certain things, but, uh, it's basically, you know, anybody's going to pass it unless you're just a total moron, but having that resource, you know, just to sit around I mean, that's who you spent the most amount of time with was those people in your, you know, immediate living area. And man, those were the guys that just took me under their wing and like, all right, Jeff, don't listen to what they're saying. They're saying it because they have to, this is how it works. This is how it's going to happen when you're in front of your men one day. Uh, so yeah, it was an invaluable experience and very fortunate to have it. What is the most uh, memorable lesson from those guys that you took with you during your career? That, you know, you're going to get up as an officer and, you know, and again, some of this is, you know, we were in Afghanistan at the time. We weren't, we weren't in Iraq at this point, you know, but like, Hey, you're going to get asked to do all this stuff. And, you know, which platoon has the best PT scores and, you know, all these different check the box things that your bosses are going to in turn kind of ultimately how you're evaluated. Yep. It's like, you know, Jeff, just when you get there, you know, you're going to have the one kid who, you know, can run like a gazelle and ace the PT test, but he can't shoot worth a lick. You know, you're going to have, the kid who's probably 30 pounds overweight and can't pass the run. But guess what? That's the kid that can hunt the 240 on a road march all day long. So, you know, when you go, don't, don't develop this mold of like, this is what a soldier should be. Like, look at every individual and like, how do I make this individual the best soldier they're capable of being? And, you know, work with the NCOs to let them make that happen. It's not your job to make it happen. Uh, so yeah, that just really stood out to me that everybody's got something they can bring to the fight. And ultimately, it was my job uh, to help them find out what that what that strength is. You know, you take and in that regard, you know, you're taking when you bring out the best strengths of each individual, the power you're creating to the overall collective unit just you know becomes exponentially more efficient and uh, more lethal on the battlefield. Um, if you want to just talk to us about. Um the time leading up to where you were going platoon leader of uh, 1st Cav 3rd Battalion, uh, was it 1-9 Cav? Yep, you yep 1-9. Um, just leading up to that, what was it like knowing that you were going to go out there and you were going to have this platoon under your command? What, what was the thoughts and feelings at that time? Yeah, it was a, a nervous excitement, you know, so I got to Iraq, so after all my training and everything, when I got to Fort Hood, uh, the unit, 1st Cav, who I was assigned to, had already deployed to Iraq. So I met them about a month after they were already there. So, you know, you get there, you're the new guy, you're the new young lieutenant that everybody wants to make fun of. It doesn't help. My second day there, I walk into a damn window air conditioning unit and gash my head open and have to get stitches. So now I'm the, the new lieutenant and I'm the idiot who walked into an air conditioner. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's exciting. Now it's, it was, it was at the time where I was at with one nine, they had told me I was going to take over this one platoon. And so it was a great experience that you're like, yeah, it'll be a couple of months. And so I kind of had my day job, you know, where I, they, they found that I could type fast. So I filled out a bunch of reports, you know, in the S2 shop, but the majority of the time I went out and just shadowed that other platoon leader. So it was almost like this easy segue as getting to know the men I was getting to watch, you know, this platoon leader, Fred Saxton, it was an awesome guy you know, to, to get to sit back and observe what right looks like, 
uh, incredible NCOs in that platoon to watch how, you know, all the BS that they teach you in training, you know, and then you have to get there and not have to do it right away, just to sit back and absorb it like a sponge. So it was an awesome experience. Uh, but then as things happen, you know, so that was, that was Charlie company one nine. And then I got the call one day of, all right, Jeff, you know, your platoon leader time is here. Uh, we're going to send you to alpha company. Like, well, what the hell, man? You know, alpha company wasn't even on our base. They had been attached to a different unit. Uh, we were up just North of the international zone and alpha company was down in the international zone. So I hadn't met any of these guys. They were in a different sector. The sector was really slow. Uh, the company commander at the time, by all accounts, everyone thought he was just an asshole. And, uh, so I just went from like this, what I thought was going to be this awesome experience to like, oh shit. Uh, but it, 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 things could not have worked out any better in the end. Uh, company commander changed out to a great guy. The group of men I took over was, uh, just phenomenal. So all worked out. Um, so, uh, one line cavalry, you, you were mechanized infantry. Uh, yeah. what sort of, uh, platoon size, uh, were you sort of working with? How many men did you have under your command? Uh, and I believe it was the, the Bradleys. Um, yep. that you're using uh, as your vehicle, as your mode of transportation. If you could just describe a Bradley to people, uh, what the arm was like, the uh, the weapon loadout and sort of size uh, when it comes to that vehicle. Yeah, so mechanized infantry. So I had, I started off with 35 under command, under my command, a full platoon. I think it's around 40. I should remember that, but no one's ever completely full. And right after I took over, a guy got hurt in a non-combat accident uh so always had 34 men under my command and a bradley is always described to people it's like think of a mini tank uh and you know it's something many can be you know something 42 42 tons can be many you know so it's, it's a track vehicle it's got a large 25 millimeter uh you know cannon on the front it's also got a 240 uh you know 762 you know machine gun uh but it's an infantry carrier uh so you know you drop the hatch in the back and in theory, you can fit nine dismounted infantry uh, back there. Uh, if you want to talk about 10 pounds of shit in a five pound bag, I mean, fitting <laughs> six guys back there is, is a lot. I don't see any way you could fit nine with all their gear and everything. But yeah, so I mean, what it, you know, especially in that environment, you know, definitely, uh, you know, being in an urban terrain where we were at in downtown Baghdad. Uh, you know, there's not a whole lot of going out around back alleys with that thing. So you, we just go out the, the main streets and then dismount and our, uh, the Bradleys would provide overwatch for us. Uh, but once we kind of got back behind the main buildings, right on each of the major streets that we, that we patrolled, it just turned into shanty towns, just mud huts, raw sewage, you know, and the Bradleys weren't a whole lot of help back there. Um, your, your mission set for your first deployment seems very, um, target specific you were going out yeah. outside the wire with a purpose what yeah. was your your feelings going outside the wire for the first time leading this platoon so it's kind of twofold so the first time when i you know was the guy you know air quotes in charge that's when we were in the really slow area down uh so charlie company who i thought i was taking over that was up on hypha street which was one of the hottest areas in all of iraq yeah. uh Alpha Company was patrolling the international zone and nothing happened there. I mean, it was like go out and basically guard Baghdad University. So, I mean, yeah, you're nervous. You don't want to screw up your first time out there, but it's kind of hard to screw up just driving down the road, stopping and parking for four hours and pulling security. 
but you know, it did, even though I wasn't in charge of anybody at Charlie Company, I just watched and observed once we got the call at Alpha Company that we were going to go up and start patrolling on Hypha Street as well. You know, the guys, they hear stories, even though they're at a different base. We know what, you know, your, your sister company is going through. And just the fact that of that platoon, I was the only one who had been on Hypha Street. So I could look at a map and I could tell them things that I had learned. I, uh, while I was still nervous the first time, kind of going into harm's way, you know, a very legitimate chance of harm's way. I at least had a, a little bit of confidence in me that, hey, I've, I've been out here. I've seen some stuff kind of go down and uh, these guys haven't. So, yeah, it was nervous. Man, I'm always first time leading men, nervous. First time got shot at, nervous as hell. Heck yeah, scared as hell. Um, so obviously you were saying that uh, Alpha Company didn't really see much action at that point, but then obviously you just mentioned that you went to the Hyfer Street. Now, September 12, 2004, uh, quite a prominent date, or probably a date that you will never forget. Um, just would you like to, to share that day with us? Yeah, so we, we, we learned that we would go out and do our patrols, you know, Alpha Company, Charlie Company, the other Charlie Company from the Arkansas National Guard who was with us, whoever it may be, we would go out and do the patrols on Hyper Street, and then we would leave, and the local insurgents would come out, you know, prance around their AKs and RPGs, like, oh, look at us, you know, we ran off the mighty Americans. Uh, and so, you know, we have our systems, you know, our cameras in the air, we see all this going down, so it was... You know, somebody came up with this idea of like, let's bring in some special ops snipers and let's go and occupy a bunch of buildings and then let's all leave, but let's leave back a really small element. And when they come out, you know, they obviously would have people on standby for QRF. And uh, so, yeah, we had these SEAL snipers with this and I wasn't there on the first one, but man, it, it worked flawlessly. Like these dudes came out, prancing around the street and they just picked them off one by one. Uh, so they always laugh, you know, it's the army, it worked, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. <laughs> At some point, you got to give the enemy credit. They're going to figure out what's going on. And so just, you know, the, the right series of events happened at the right time. Uh, we had the largest stay behind mission we had done yet. Uh, we were going to occupy a different series of buildings that we thought they wouldn't think we would be in. It was the tallest buildings on the street. Uh, just so happened uh, that was the day that... Uh, my platoon, my company was responsible for the main insertion. My platoon was responsible for inserting the special ops guys. And, uh, you know, the next series of event that happened to that, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was set to film a propaganda video that day at the local mosque, uh, which we always knew they hit stuff in there. And so, yeah, you know, the engagement criteria was supposed to be, you know, like five military age males with weapons out in the street, you know, and then 50 dudes come rolling out of the mosque you know, toting RPGs and, you know, so we're not there. We'd already dropped the guys off. You know, we were standing by as QRF at the gate, uh, you know, back at our base, but, you know, the, the SEALs caught in and like, you know, put a, you know, there's, there's more than five. They're like engaged. And so they, they did. And when they did, it didn't take them long to figure out where it was coming from. So yeah, we had to rush back out there and, and fight our way in uh, to get back. And then it just, at that point, man, anybody, it was, Anybody with an AK or weapon uh, in the Hypha Street area, that immediate vicinity came out that day. I mean, it was gunfire from all directions. It was grenade after grenade. They saw a target of opportunity. We were kind of spread out. So they, you know, the car bomb came through, got through our 
outer cordon with one of our other platoons and hit one of our vehicles and and blew it up and yeah it was a uh, it's quite the day one of um <coughs> guys from um charlie they, they ended up getting the silver star is that correct yeah so that was with uh alpha company that was uh different platoons so i was in first platoon second platoon alpha company they were the rear security so yeah when the bradley got hit uh that caught on fire and there's some guys inside there so as it turns out it ended up being one of the more you know not that necessarily valor awards matter but that was one of the more decorated days uh, of that deployment across you know all the army everybody that was there so yeah there actually ended up being two silver stars for those guys there's a couple of bronze stars with valor uh several uh, army commendation with valor so yeah it was uh quite the day how was it for you, first off, um, being near the SEALs? Obviously, this was your first early dream to become uh, a SEAL team member. Now you're here in this leadership position as a, a platoon leader of infantry, 1st Cav, and you see these Navy SEALs. Were you, I don't know, a little bit jealous? Were you, were you in awe, or is it just, you know, it's just the person on my left, let's get on with the job? Yeah, no, we had met enough of them beforehand on other missions, you know, just planning for these. They would be in there and, yeah, look, I mean, respect the hell out of what they do. Don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, they're, you know, they're, it, it's a man who does a job. He does it well. And uh, so, yeah, you know, on this particular day, uh, you know, I, I do always get people crap. I'm like, you know, let's not forget it was this little army infantry officer and his men who went in and saved 12 Navy SEALs. Now let's, uh, so yeah, any. You know, the seals that I come across, I make sure I remind them of that. But, uh, but yeah, I, I tell you, man, I, what really stood out to me about that experience was when we came in to get them, uh, these guys came down and, you know, we had left a, a different platoon from our scout uh, platoon, had been there to provide security for them. Uh, but they didn't necessarily had the big picture of what was going on, where everybody else was. And when I came in, it was right about the time the seals all came down from the bottom floor. He just walked in and he was like, you know, who's who's in charge here? And they pointed over at me and he walked up and was just like, hey, Lieutenant, you know, this guy's probably a master chief. I don't know what his rank, you know, for a seal. He's like, we don't have the situation of what's going on on the battlefield. You do tell me where you need me and my men and what's the best way I can get in touch. What my what frequency do I need to be on so I can talk to you? And I'm like, dude, what a freaking pro. You know, the guy could have just easily, you know, you hear these stories about these special operations guys or, or dicks and come in and just want to step on conventional toes. And it could not have been any more different there. Yeah. Um, obviously that day, at what point were you able to, to process those events? Because I know there's a bit of the story that you left out about uh, two men, you say, from uh, a grenade that didn't quite make it over a wall. Now. Coming that close to to death, at what point did you process everything that had happened that day? I think it was, uh, you know, we got back and like you get done. I mean, it's just it's such a rush. I mean, you were just, you know, we'd been up all night. Uh, just, I mean, just the adrenaline is going. And you don't know, what, I mean, again, a lot of other stuff happened. You read about it, the Bradley that was on fire. We ended up having to come in and shoot it, you know, with a Hellfire missile. Uh, not us, but, you know, big army did that led to a bunch of civilian casualties uh, on the ground, including there was a reporter, uh, it wasn't Al Jazeera, another Middle Eastern news agency was killed while reporting live on air. Uh, so 
all this stuff's happening and you know the burning vehicle's still out there you got to go recover it so everybody's on standby that's what i'm I, I tell you all that that context and so they're like just go down you know go back to the gate you know relax for a little bit you can be ready to go and we all got back and just like the rush ran off and like literally every one of us, you know, it's September, still 110 degrees over there. We all just passed out on the concrete. Uh, and it was when we kind of woke up from that and everything had called, you know, calmed down. We weren't getting called back out that we just kind of had this like, holy shit, man. We were just a part of, you know, what may go down as the biggest fight in all of Baghdad this entire year. And, you know, we were right smack in the middle of it. So uh, I don't think any of us openly talked about that acknowledgement you know, we did our AAR and like, but it was just, I, I think we all in some way realized what we had just been a part of. Um, I, I'd like <coughs> to, you know, not gloss over everything, but fast forward to, to your second deployment, just yeah. purely because I feel it's such a contrast to your first deployment. Now, um, the mission set was slightly different. Uh, you're going out as a, a 24-7 presence in sector rather than targeting uh, specifically. You also uh, left behind um, your wife at the time and child. Uh, and also, you've gone from lieutenant to captain. That's quite a big thing to, to encompass there. So would you be able to talk to us about that for a moment, please? Yeah, I mean, it's... Got so many things, you know, taking command, you know, in a weird series of events to, you know, where I thought I was going to be a platoon leader in Charlie Company. I end up becoming the executive officer and then, you know, for five months and then the, the company commander there is a lieutenant and, uh, you know, getting that opportunity to, to take that group of men back over, you know, even though I didn't serve with them, I knew them all. Yeah. Uh, yeah like you said, man, the fight just, uh, it could not have been any more different. It was, it went from very kinetic targeted operations like you mentioned earlier to fighting a ghost everything you hear about it was all ieds and in our particular case the efps uh snipers you know you had this you know before we go out in company operations and there was an operations order before we had a, a mission to go accomplish and here it literally just felt like all right you know you're driving around in the most heavily ied area or you're responsible for the most heavily ied sector in all of baghdad and all of iraq and your mission is to go drive around for eight hours and to provide continuous presence in sector. And, you know, the translation for that to the men is like, sir, what the, what the F man, that's just drive around till we get blown up. And so, yeah, you know, we had different upper leadership above my level, you know, first deployment, everybody was a big fan, disappointment, not so much, uh, you know, brilliant people, just different leadership styles. So yeah, man, it was a, it's a different, different fights, significant leadership challenge on my end to get the men to buy in to, you know, Hey, this, this isn't hyper street anymore, guys. Let's, we get, we can't pick and choose our missions. And, uh, we all took an oath and this is a job we got to do. That must've been quite a challenge for you to, to keep the morale of the men, um, you know, going out of there, just driving around 24 seven, as you say, in one of the most heavily IED areas, um, wandering about aimlessly almost um how yep. did you keep the morale of the men up during this time yeah I, i'm not going to take any credit for that i mean that was i always you know i'd sit down with my ncos uh my first sergeant was awesome all my platoon sergeants were awesome and you know they're, they're smart guys and would 
see right through the bullshit side. Just guys, I'm not going to polish a turd. You know, I don't, I don't like this mission any more than you do, but we have a job to do. And, and I think from a morale standpoint, instead of the men, you know, the younger soldiers, younger NCOs looking it up and seeing their leadership, you know, make something of this situation that they all knew it wasn't. I think they appreciated the transparency and respected us that, you know, sometimes you don't got to like it. You just got to do it, you know? And, and again, we had great guys. You, you always find a way. I mean, we, we knew the threat out there. And so you may not like it, but you're damn sure on edge. You know, you weren't complacent when you got out there because of that. So no, it wasn't a magic bullet. You know, this is what we did for morale. It was, you know, say what you mean and mean what you say. And me and my leaders, we told the truth. One of the most uh, poignant days, I think, from your your second deployment, uh, if we could talk about that for a moment, is March fifteenth, two thousand and seven. Yeah, man, that was a whole lot of things about it. Out all night the night before, one of the few times we did have a targeted operation. Uh, just to give you an idea of how things changed, uh, you know, we're up all night, and the next day we had this joint mission with the Iraqi army that there was going to be some press there that wanted to take pictures, you know, of us running this checkpoint together. And, you know, I asked for relief from that mission, uh, since we were up all night going after this other guy and, you know, still no, people are going to be there. We got to take pictures. So yeah, just everything about it was ominous guys retired. Uh, then yeah, lead vehicle. I wasn't there again because we were split up into smaller elements. I was kind of handling coordination to get that other group, the other platoon out with us and uh, lead vehicle hit by an EFP, disabled. Uh, no one was hurt, uh, but the vehicle was disabled. And then we had six men get out from the adjacent vehicles to uh, begin recovery operations. And that was when a secondary IED detonated. You know, and I always say we, everyone knows the enemy does that. You look for it, you plan for it, uh, but the enemy gets a vote too. And some days the enemy wins. And on this day, he did. We didn't see it. So, yeah, four men were killed instantly. Uh, two suffered uh, catastrophic injuries. One was an amputee. Uh, the other, some significant abdominal wounds, and they uh, they survived. You know, one of, there's one guy again. There wasn't many dismounts. There's there only one dismount left. He was actually the gunner in a Humvee, and he jumped out and kind of assessed the situation. There was nothing he could do for the four, but he, you know gave medical aid for the other two and kept them alive temporarily. And uh, so yeah, for that day, uh, amputee, he passed from his injuries three days later. And then uh, the other soldier, Doc, Doc Leitner, a medic, he passed from his injuries six days on March 21st after he made it all the way back to the States and passed from his. So yeah, six men in, in one event at that point during the surge, that was the, uh, the most, the most KIA from, from one event. Uh, so yeah, it was a tough day, man. How did that affect you personally? Because obviously, you know, it's not just people that you're commanding, they're, they're your friends, aren't they? Um, yeah, yeah. How did that affect you? Did it affect you instantly in that moment? Or is it still, you know, you've got that game set mind and you're still, if I don't take command of this situation, more people are going to die? You know, I think when I got in front of the men, that mindset kicked in of like, you know, was able to, and I'm sure you've heard, uh, I've heard other guests on your show, and I know many have probably talked about it, the ability of, the ability for us to, to compartmentalize things. And yeah. so when I was in front of the men, I, I could just tuck that away. And 
that back corner of my head and focus on the job and and realizing the fragile state that the unit was in at that time and what they needed to see was you know strength and unity in their leaders and uh, again hats off to my ncos man because those were the guys that really you know they were hurting as much as as i was or anybody else was uh but they, they they're the ones that set the example uh not me uh but yeah man behind closed doors yeah it hit me like a ton of bricks man you know you you try to discipline yourself beforehand and you know something like that can happen and probably will happen but you know first deployment 34 men 27 purple hearts you know for injuries in combat but we didn't lose anybody uh so yeah you know so there's that you know you never prepare to lose six in one event uh you know of course what could i have done different one of the kids i had swapped you know jimmy arnold i had swapped spots with him in the humvee i uh, stayed back to handle the coordination uh yeah, man, it just, uh, the side of me that, why didn't I tell my bosses to fuck off, you know, when they told me you have to go to that mission, why didn't I just not do it and face the consequences? And it's easy to say all that in hindsight, but these are all the things going through my head, so. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm using this to sort of paint a picture of, you know, what my life might have been like when you left the forces. Now, that's something I want to talk about now is, yeah. the moment you were leaving the armed forces, how were you feeling at that time? And I was so disenchanted with the military at that time. And I don't want, I mean, I, I loved every bit about my service. I, I It's taken an immense amount of pride and uh, would not change anything of how, but I, I don't like a lot of the stuff that happened, but I can't take the good, you know, without realizing there's some bad. Uh, but, I, you know, a lot of the stuff I talked about earlier, I felt like things had just become very political. Uh, there's, several of the things that happened during that deployment that even though I probably knew I was going to get out, uh, they definitely solidified my decision. Uh, I, I didn't, and again, I'm not being critical of others to each their own, just uh, in, in my mind, like I didn't want to be a part of what I saw happening. And so, yeah, like I signed my paperwork to leave. I know I had a little bit of time in the reserves, but uh, the best way I can put it is I literally pulled off the base at Fort Hood and pulled over on the side of the road and took my watch from, 24 hour time to 12 hour time and said the military is behind me and the civilian moving forward. That's it. Couldn't have been more wrong, but that's what I thought in my head at the time. Um, obviously moving forward, you, you've experienced so much over those two deployments. Did you just, you know, pack that away in your mind and it just stay there or at some point, did you realize that you might be suffering with a bit of PTS? And if you did, at what point did you realize, I need to do something about it? Yeah, I mean, the way I describe it is, I mean, you read, I came home, my marriage was on the rocks. Uh, you know, yeah, I got a good job and put the act on. And uh, I always say, like, you know, I was this outgoing guy and, you know, that, that was the norm. And every now and then we all have a bad day. And that was the exception. And people ask, like, when did you realize? I'm like, well, this stuff doesn't happen overnight. You know, it, it's, a, it's an evolution. And without knowing it, the, the exception became the norm. The bad days where I was down in the dumps and didn't want to do anything. That became normal to me. And then whenever something good would happen in my life, I'm like, whoa, this, this never happened. So, yeah, so it wasn't just like, like you know, this thing clicked. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it didn't take me long to realize that uh, you know, man, I'm, I'm, I'm different, not, not that different is a bad thing, but you can't go through these experiences and not expect to 
uh, evolve and your perspective on life. So, yeah, I think it was now I, I didn't think any of that was self-destructive anyways. I mean, I didn't, you know, it wasn't drugs or alcohol or any of that. I mean, I enjoy beer as much as the next guy, but I wasn't like, you know, losing myself in the bottle every night. But yeah, it was just, it was probably about five years after that, you know, I talk about in the book, you know, my mom just looked at me and just said, you know, man, my, my boy looks dead inside. And uh, it just breaks my heart that, you know, I used to look and see this light in his eyes and the light's gone and there's nothing I can do about it. And so that was when it kind of clicked to me that like, man, this act, but I think I'm pulling over on everybody that I got everything together. And yeah, the divorce had happened at this point, but or was about to happen at that point. You know, I, I thought that I was fooling everyone and I realized that I wasn't. And that's what made me kind of look in the mirror and say, you know, it's time to, it's time to, I, I don't know what people's like, you know, what is PTS? Like, I don't know. De I'll define PTS when you can define what normal is, you know, it, it's different in the eye of the beholder. And all I knew was that moment made me realize that I'm not being the best father to Cole that I'm capable of being, not being a bad one, but I'm not being the best I could be. I'm not being the best son. I'm not being the best brother. I'm not being the best friend. Uh, I'm not putting forth the effort to do so. Uh, and that's when I knew change needed to happen. Once you realize this change, what, what did you seek out to facilitate this change? Was it uh, the VA? Was it uh, medical? Or was it just something in yourself that you changed? No, I ended up, you know, I'd gone to the VA just for other disability stuff, injuries uh, over time. And, you know, every time you went in there and, you know, hey, here's a pill for this, here's a pill for that. And look, man, best intentions, but, you know, it's anyhow. So I wasn't a big fan of going that route. Uh, so I, I went to a, someone, I was living in Tyler, Texas at the time, and someone recommended this counselor. And uh, I tried one early on and wasn't impressed with them, but just something about this guy just, uh, again, back to being transparent and telling the truth and not trying to blow smoke up someone's ass. Uh, he didn't, he didn't pull any punches, man. I mean, from the very first day, he said, let's start with the worst. And I told him some stuff and he just looked at me and didn't try to pull some shrink bullshit or anything. He just goes, Jeff, that is messed up, man. Uh, Hollywood couldn't make some of this stuff up. So uh, you got a long road ahead of you and we got a lot of stuff we got to figure out to get you back to being you. And it just, I can respect that. Uh, so from there came a, a lot of stuff about acceptance of these things and that no matter how much I didn't want to acknowledge some of these things that happened, guess what they have and they're not going anywhere. Uh, you know, the more you try to fight something, it seems like the more, you know, I, the metaphor I always use with shadows, like the more you try to fight your shadows, the deeper they sink their claws into you. And, but when you accept them, they are part of who you are. Uh, and again, back to defining normal, I'm never going to be, I always say like, getting me back to being me. That doesn't happen for any of us, whether you went through the shit we did or not. Uh, it's all about quit focusing on getting back to what you were and focus more on being the best version of who you can be. And just that shift of acceptance and me and me alone being the one that has the choice uh, to how I respond to that acceptance just really resonated with him. That's, that's, I think that, that just sounds so poignant and I think that's some, some sound advice as well. Um, Legion 8, obviously that's Something yeah. that you um, started, would you like to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, and I do that. Forgive me for one second. My dog's about to start barking if I don't let her outside. So, <laughs> Joey on camera. Uh, yeah, so part of the, you know, kind of coming out of things was the counselor 
told me that I should share some of these experiences with people outside of the military. And yeah, you know, I was your typical guy, unless you were there with me, you know, and seen the things I've seen, you can't, I'm not going to talk about it with you. And so there in Tyler, I started doing CrossFit. Uh, it was kind of the getting out of my bubble and actually making an effort to meet people. And uh, so, yeah, so that was the group that he challenged me to share this with. So one night at a barbecue, uh, which I usually found in a reason not to go to. I would always lie and make up an excuse, but I went this night and, uh, you know, I was laughing. It's funny, you know, like for all these things, like sitting down with him, I was nervous, like sitting down with like, but he was a stranger. So even then I was nervous, but it was like, I have, I'll probably never see this guy again. That's fine. But like, these were my friends. And, you know, again, back to where people who are going through these struggles in life, you get this self-imposed stigma that you put on yourself that like, oh man, if people are going to think I'm messed up in the head or, they're going to paint me with some scarlet letter and like, Oh, that guy's seen some crazy crap. You know, when he walks in the room, we should look away. And they weren't the ones putting that stigma on me. I was. And so, yeah, man, I was nervous as hell to tell him. And when I say it took me a, you know, a beer or six of liquid courage to get the guts up to start talking about it. But I just started talking and it was the first time I had kind of told the whole story of everything in one sitting. And, you know, whereas in my mind, I thought people would get up and, run out of the room and like this guy's a lunatic instead they all just walked up crying hugged me told me they loved me and uh you know so it was really impactful and in, in crossfit they do these things you know hero wads work out of the day to uh memorialize military and you know fallen first responders and at one point when i was talking i'd referred to the men as the legion eight and one of the guys said well how about we come up with a hero wad for the guys and let's call it legion eight and that was the night it was born. Who would have known what it was going to turn into? Absolutely. <laughs> Obviously, um, with that chap saying about talking about your experiences, was that the drive behind doing the book Legion Rising? Yeah, so it was, you know, through Legion 8, I was getting out and it was growing like crazy. I was going to gyms all over the country and, you know, I would always do a little speech at the beginning, like what we're about and, it was always about the men. I would tell the stories about the men. And I had this, you know, this really impactful video of pictures that all the family members gave me, uh, you know, so that people don't see these guys, you know, you do a hero workout, you hear a name, you think like, oh, it's a soldier who passed away, but I see pictures from their family. And then it's a son, it's a husband, it's a father, it's a brother, it's a fiance. Uh, so it's really impactful. And so it was doing that, you know, very comfortable talking about the men, but very rarely did I ever have to share anything about my experiences through that and as it grew i think that just people you know the next evolution was well hey this is great about the men but what about your part of the story we want to know more about your part so i started getting asked to do that more uh and then was approached about you know you should write a book about these experiences uh and so yeah i probably put it off for a couple of years and then it was one of the moms of the guys i lost uh sergeant green his mom linda you know, she was the one that just sat me down after a Legion 8 event one night, ironically. And uh, you know, in her words, she was this chain-smoking, F-bomb-dropping, awesome <laughs> woman. She's quit smoking now. I got always. She makes me say that on any podcast <laughs> or show I'm on. But yeah, but she just sat me down one night and just said, uh, you know, Jeff, it's time. Write, write the fucking book. <laughs> and so when, when, when Linda talks, you listen. How did it feel? putting those words on paper was it a relief you know almost taking it out of your mind and and putting it on a piece of paper and you know putting it away 
or did it stir up some emotions that you've perhaps forgotten about? You know, most everything, it's a great question. And, you know, my answer would be, a lot of people ask if it was cathartic. And it really wasn't because most of the really bad stuff that happened in there, I had already talked about because it was all about the men. You know, yeah, my part in it, but I had been speaking, you know, for five years at this point, you know, hundreds of times telling the story about the men and these things that happened. What I didn't expect was going through the process, how we selectively kind of expunge things from our memory. And I would talk about something and and go back. And these were long, you know, in-depth sessions with me and my co-writer uh, and just things that have brought back that I had suppressed and uh, some of those emotions coming back. And, and she, my, my co-writer, did a really good job of like just getting in my head and learning that she could almost tell when I was holding something. And I wasn't intentionally holding things back. I was very upfront. I was going to like, you started the show with it. Like this thing was going to be real and honest and raw. Uh, but like she would pick up on something and just ask and probe and probe and it would just bring more out. So yeah, there were, there were many obsessions, you know, with, you know, tears involved and, you know, or getting done and reminder of being pissed off about something. Uh, but yeah, it was, uh, I guess the way I describe it, I tell people it was a, it was a very interesting exercise. You know, I, I thought I was prepared for it and I was for the really bad stuff. I wasn't for things that I didn't even realize I had suppressed. I would imagine that was writing that parts that you suppressed. I would imagine that was exhausting for you. That sort of roller coaster of emotions as you were yeah. reliving bits that, you know, you'd forgotten, not not on purpose, but perhaps um, psychologically just packed away in a closet in the back of your mind. Yeah. And this co-writer has opened the door, podding and broken and saying, right, let's, let's talk about this little bit, open the door yeah. to something that you've forgotten about. I'd imagine that was quite tiring for you. Yeah, there was uh, many nights of having a tough time going to sleep and many nights where I just knocked the F out because I was dead tired. When it was finally finished, uh, and it, obviously the book's been incredibly well received, and probably something that uh, infantry officers should read as standard to, to understand what the potential is of what they should go through. How do you feel now it's out there, you know, in the big wide world, and so many people have read it? Yeah, well, first, that, I mean, that in and of itself is surprising. I mean, I the running joke was, you know, uh, I could guilt, you know, 50 of my closest friends and family members into buying it, you know, and not that it was a New York Times bestseller or anything, but it's done far better than I ever expected. And, you know, the most rewarding thing has been, uh, you know, tons of messages from active duty, uh, retired, uh, but equally as impactful as those messages of how it's impacted them or the young soldier, to your point, that like now I have an idea of what I need to be prepared for is the non-veteran community. You know, I always say like everybody, everybody has a story. This is mine. Everybody goes through shit and no story is any better or any worse. They're just different and they're different because they're shaped off. We all have our own different perspectives in life. And, you know, so to get a message from the woman that was sexually assaulted, how the book impacted her of acceptance and choice, you know, uh, the guy whose, you know, spouse had been unfaithful, uh, that made him realize, you know, then it was, he was, an absentee husband and it made him realize. So 
yeah. I mean, so it's just, those are the things that have just been like, you know, to, to realize you, you write this book, you know, it's, it's for me, it's for the family members, it's for my men. Uh, then you realize that it's having an impact in the veteran community as a whole, and then it's impacting people in the non-veteran community, which is uh, something that my co-writer and I take an immense amount of pride in. And again, why, when I mentioned earlier, I look for any and every opportunity to get out and talk about these things. It's because I have seen that firsthand, the impact that it's having in people's lives. And not because it's my story, it's the collective story of so many different people. And I think from that, anyone can relate to it. Uh, and on that front, one of the questions I do like to ask the, the people I interview is, what advice would you give to um, a serviceman that's looking at uh, coming out of the armed forces, looking at that civilian life, uh, and people who are perhaps coming out perhaps with PTS in, in their own little version or, or a TBI, yeah. what sort of advice would you give them? That be forever proud of the service you provided and you'll miss it every day. Uh, but that's in the past and don't spend, I kind of touched on it earlier. Don't focus so much on who you were and don't be defined by who you were. Focus on what you're capable of becoming and realize that the true definition of who you are is a forever evolving process. And it's up to you to make that the best version of yourself that you could be. Uh, because you're capable of that, not because of what you did. That's some very good advice. Um, thank you very much for your time. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure and honor to speak to you. Um, sharing those stories of the, the men that you served with, um, some absolute great advice, some very uh, comical anecdotes of <laughs> when you were growing up, throwing yeah. down your pants. I mean, it, it, it's been a roller coaster interview. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Um, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, no, absolutely, Dan. The pleasure was mine. And uh, sorry for the fly. Sorry for the interruption. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, you know, hey, like I said, you know, before we went on air, man, thoughts, thoughts with you and your country, you know, at this, this time, pretty, uh, you know, significant event. So we're all thinking about you guys. Much appreciated. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>